0: Hello and welcome back to the mole pigs podcast today we are following up with Brenda Rubenstein's tutorial on her lab's work in storage and computing with small molecules if you haven't seen it yet make sure you do now as it really is fascinating also with me today are Anastasia Hello Boya Hello, and I am will Brenda is currently the Dukowski Family Assistant Professor of Chemistry at Brown University. While the focus of her work is on developing new electronic structure methods, she is also deeply engaged in rethinking computing architectures. Prior to arriving at Brown, she was a Lawrence Distinguished Postdoctoral Fellow at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. She received her SCBs in Chemical Physics and Applied Mathematics at Brown University, her MPhil in Computational Chemistry whilst a Churchill Scholar at the University of Cambridge and her PhD in chemical physics at Columbia University. Brenda, hi.
1: Hi Will, thank you for inviting me and, and thank you for organizing this.
0: Thanks for joining us. Uh, we've got a lot of questions here so we might not be able to get through them all but um, how about we start with one from you Boya.
2: Um, I have a very naive question. Um, why do you need to synthesize the Eugene molecules if the information is stored in the combinatorics of the reaction substrate? And I assume that HPLC can help read out what the substrates are.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you're absolutely right. When we first started this project, um, we, we were trying to look for one synthetic chemistry that could cover everything. But we increasingly realized that you don't need any of that. So you're, you're absolutely right. Um, so as long as you can assemble a collection of molecules um, that are, have, have distinct mass spectral patterns. Um, then you're all good in in, in our scheme. Uh, And so we have been using things like metabolites um, we've also been using things like just regular phenols uh, because they're cheap to get. Um, but, but your point definitely drives home uh, the message. You know, we, we could use things like like peptides that we can get off the shelf. Um, we also thought about ordering uh, large libraries of molecules from various companies, and we can use those as well. Um, so, so you're 100% right, and um, in, in our method's very general uh, across different types of and uh, classes of molecules.
3: I have a very big picture of a question. So uh, in order like, for information storage and processing molecules to be more widely available, say on like a global scale, or we, we would like, ideally need to sh- see like a pretty big shift in everyday technology and how we do things, or at least some sort of way of seamlessly interfacing with today's computers. How do you foresee these issues being overcome and like what time scale do you think we're looking at for this?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this is a, a, a very important question. Um, I don't think this is something that's going to happen overnight. Um, But my my view of it is is that silicon does a lot of things incredibly well. Um, But there are things that silicon doesn't do well. uh, And it's exactly what you're talking about. is basically interfacing with chemistry and biology. Um, So if you you think about uh, the way chemistry and biology works, it's basically entirely controlled by molecules. Um, And so whenever you have to interface silicon with Um, biotechnology or or with uh, chemistry, then you have to find a way to actually translate information from silicon to the molecules and back and forth. Um, And that can require a lot of overhead. Uh, And so what we really need to work on is that interface. Um, And uh, the the big picture that that at least I foresee is that uh, these kinds of technologies, whether they be DNA, or they be small molecules, um, are are trying to go basically beyond the current computing uh, paradigm uh, to try to fill in things that, let's just say, at the border that silicon just, just doesn't do particularly well right now. Um, So I I think in order to to realize those advantages, we we really have to work at that interface, and I think there are a lot of um, issues and problems at that interface. Um, We we would have to be able to actually uh, design ways of of silicon technologies to to recognize molecules quickly and rapidly on very, very small scales, um, to to be able to analyze them, to be able to detect them, and also be able to um, actually pass signals to them. And of course, people are are, are trying to work at that interface, but I don't think it's, it's quite there yet. Um, so I, I think the big picture is, you know, we're trying to fill in one area uh, where, you know, obviously organisms, biologies, uh, biology computes with these kinds of molecules, um, but we need to bring the two uh, areas together for the, for uh, either, you know, for, for molecules to really make sense as a technology moving forward.
3: Yeah, it seems like there's a lot more work going on right now on the side of just like figuring out how to do things in molecules as opposed to working on the interface, so do you think it's on like us in academia to, to figure out that interface and then convince the tech industry like, hey, like we actually have a working solution or just tell them like, hey, we have this really cool approach with molecules, go figure out how to how to integrate that with everything else
1: yeah uh, I don't know if it's specific to your question but but I, I think uh, is it our responsibility I wouldn't quite phrase it that way but I, I I do think that academics are the ones who put forth the the ideas in sort of um, you know the, the way I think about it is, is sort of stepping stones um, we put down those stepping stones so that other uh, people in industry and elsewhere in academia uh, can, can actually build around those stepping stones so so I do think that we have to lay some of those foundations um, and, and and do a better job there um, I don't think it's entirely our responsibility to do that, but I still think the key ideas have to be built there, um, and then we can go in and, and say, um, you know, amazing engineers, come on and and, and go ahead and
2: engineer this. Um, I another question I have is, um, I by listening to your tutorial, I'm wondering about the last part. The last part you mentioned that. Um, the current existing theories for creating computing using chemistry is not practical. So I wonder, can you elaborate on that? Um, what do you mean by they are not practical? And what kind of computation is that? OK. Sh- sure, sure, sure. Um, I'm not trying
1: to be offensive to anyone. Um, but I, I think there are, there are a lot of uh, theories out there that do not work with, with practical uh, small molecule chemistry. So a lot of those theories were originally developed with DNA in mind. Um, DNA has the benefit of the fact that it hybridizes quite cleanly. Uh, so, so yes, you can get um, strangely hybridized structures, but you know essentially in DNA, if, if you uh, build your sequence into your strands, um, you, you know you, you can, uh, to some degree control your hybridization. That's a really nice benefit of DNA. Most of chemistry does not have that ability. Uh, so if you take arbitrary uh, reactions um, and you propose them, they're not gonna work for real chemistry. Uh, and, and so we face this this issue um, many times. Um, you can't just tune your rate constants to whatever you want. Um, you, you can't uh, create a series. So if you're talking about computation that requires 20 different reactions to complete um, and also doesn't take into account uh, side products that are produced along the way, that's not realistic for, for everyday chemistry. Um, and, and so that, that's a little bit of what I'm getting at. I think a lot of the theory was created with DNA in mind, but DNA is an exception. It's it's not the rule in chemistry.
2: So are there any other ways um, to not... Uh, so those theories you mentioned are mainly DNA. Is there any more chemistry-related theory about c- computing that currently exists?
1: No. No, as far as I'm concerned. So there are a lot of demonstrations done by um, four thinking chemists about how information can be stored and a little bit about how things can be processed, mostly in non-equilibrium reactions, but there's no real theory for any of it. Uh, And so I think this is a a very large open area uh, of of, um, really making a theory that matches chemistries that, that really go on in the everyday lab. Um, and, and so we're 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 trying to think about those theories quite deeply right now, but but there's a lot of opportunity to to do better.
3: And just to dive into the comparison with DNA a little bit more, so um, like this sort of programmability and uh, the ability to tune like DNA reactions is definitely a strength of like DNA computing. Do you think it is an Achilles heel for chemical computing that we need to overcome, given that there are sort of other entities like DNA that don't have that problem?
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um so I I think we have to think about problem spaces uh so I I think you know DNA has a clear strength uh in in the fact that it's so so pro- programmable um with respect to to small molecules, small molecules can can uh, basically actuate uh, they can represent other types of functions that DNA uh, is, is not it's not so easy to program in, into DNA uh, so for for example, you can create very very complex sets of of large series of couple differential um, equations uh, that you can represent using these different reactions, and the rate constants can vary, and uh, you can also talk about not just having uh, you know, two, two molecules react at a time, you can have a you know, series of molecules react in very complex ways. So there, the advantage for small molecules is that there, there are more different types of computing that are possible, um, but, but they're definitely not going to be as specific. Um, so, yes, there's a little bit of an Achilles heel, but there's also a little bit of a trade off uh, in terms of what are the kinds of functions that, that you may be able to, to create.
3: So, in that sense, do you envision that like, DNA and small molecules could coexist within one computing system?
1: Um, I do think so. And, of course, it's what happens in biology. Uh, so, so I am absolutely motivated by, by that comparison. We have small molecules in our bodies that are orchestrating a whole bunch of different things, um, not even molecules, ions, uh, that, that are orchestrating things and, and constantly interacting with our DNA. So I, I'm very hopeful that, that we can, A, build um, even more capacious storage paradigms that, that use both, um, um, but also uh, to create interesting computing paradigms that, that use both.
3: So in this sort of biology analogy, we can see that DNA tends to be very long lasting and it, you know, doesn't really get degraded in a cell, but small molecules are constantly being renewed. Uh, But for in terms of long term data storage and computing, maybe one would argue that, you know, that sort of framework is not super appropriate. And, you know, DNA is quite robust in the sense that we've been able to sequence several thousand year old uh, DNA. Well, even though some of it might have been a bit degraded. Uh, But how resilient are, say, like the Oogie molecules been working for long-term data storage? Do you think that's a benchmark that other chemical storage modalities would have to match?
1: Yeah, so so we've looked at our Oogies uh, with respect to this, uh, and the simple answer is we haven't found that they degrade at all. Um, The the reason why, uh, under normal conditions, um, the reason being is that Uh, Unlike with DNA, where you have lots of uh, biological enzymes that are just around uh, and and could potentially get into a vial or a flask if you're not careful, there are no such enzymes for for these kinds of molecules. Um, So so there's nothing natural that that is going to to break many of these species apart. Um, And so maybe this ties back to Boya's question about why use certain types of molecules. We use the Oogies because they're super stable. you know, there, there's nothing that that's going to get them out of that free energy well in an easy fashion. Whereas other types of molecules, that's not true. Uh, and and so for us, um, we we think that our molecules would be as stable as as DNA. Um, of course, we we can't go back and you know look for um, the, the the caveman that that had an oogie molecule in him and figure out you know how long it lasted. Um, but there's there's no reason to believe, and we also haven't found in the lab, um, that that we'd be suffering from degradation that would be any faster than would go on the DNA.
0: That's really interesting. And so do you also not see any uh, degradation modalities like tautomerization? And are they quite resistant to UV radiation, that sort of thing? Yeah,
1: um, you know, we haven't done the UV experiment. Uh, UV might cause a, a problem as it would for almost every molecule I can think of. Um, but, you know, we also build our, our molecules so that, uh, you know, if they tautomerize, it's, it's not a, a particularly big deal in the way that we read things out. Um, so, uh, you know, we haven't looked at everything, and I, I wouldn't guarantee you that if you bombarded our molecules with radiation that they would uh, sustain that, but uh, DNA probably wouldn't either. Um, so I, I think we're still quite comparable.
3: Yeah, in that case, you can get away with just putting them in different physical encasings. Uh, to pr- protect them from radiation which should not be a difficult challenge but in that sense yeah in that sense sort of what spatial density of information storage can you achieve because right now it seems like you're limited by how small you can make the wells and multi-well plate and i was just wondering how that compares to other storage media as well potentially
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so so the use of the multi-well plates is, is really because of the fact that we want to do um, as a simplistic and straightforward a mass spectrometry or detection as, as, as easy as possible. Um, but there's no reason that we, we couldn't just create one one pot uh, as long as we can read it out. Uh, so the, the plates were really just to, to make sure that we could very quickly read out um, subsets of our, our information. Um, if we were to put everything in one pot, in one well, um, then uh, according to our estimates, if we're using Oogie molecules, again, we don't have to stick to Oogies, um, we're, we're talking about uh, two to three times as dense uh, as, as DNA would typically be. Um, so it's, it's in the same ballpark as DNA, a little bit more dense because the molecules are smaller, um, but uh, you know, that, that's assuming that you can throw everything into one pot and then, and then read it out. Um, but, you know, my, my understanding, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, for, for my engineering colleagues, is that also um, you, you, you can't uh, immediately read out thousands and thousands of strands of DNA either. Uh, and, and so there is, in some sense, some segregation because you you just can't read everything um, constantly through, through, let's say, uh, a nanopore sequencer. Uh,
0: following on from that, so... Um um so some of the problems i, I think you, you went into is that it depends on how much uh monomer diversity you can get so if you can't get enough diversity with your molecule of choice then um that limits the size of the pot you can do have you thought about um any ways around that such as localization maybe having some kind of molecular lattice um in order to get by with with less diversity
1: yeah we we have thought about that um but i i, I think the the interesting problem, and, and, and please tell me if I'm wrong here, um, is, is just uh, how do you really synthesize such, such lattices? Um So we can, you know, wells are sort of an easy answer. We just use a physical substrate. Um, but sort of starting from scratch, um, making sure that molecules separate into different places is, is a difficult thing synthetically. Uh, so we, we've thought about things like droplet, um, compartments, uh, or um, maybe even using um, uh, different types of phase segregation to separate molecules. But if you just go into chemistry and ask chemistry to do that for you, it's really not easy. And it's actually an interesting frontier to figure out how to do that well, um, you know, beyond maybe, let's say, two phases or three phases. Um, and, and so we'd, we'd love to see that, uh, but, but we haven't seen it yet, and that's, that's why we haven't uh, spent as much time there.
3: And related to that, have you thought about like some solid state chemical modalities and maybe if we can do solid state molecular computing?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, can you define a little bit more of what you mean by solid state here?
3: So like in this case, uh, we're, for, for both DNA and for, I guess, the Oogie molecules, you kind of need to have them in solution. And so you're dealing with solutions. But maybe like in terms of thinking about interfacing with like everyday, like you know, our phones or our computers, we'd like, probably want it to be you know solid, not liquid. Uh, so even just that in that very basic framework are are there any chemical modalities you finish would work in, in that way yeah
1: I, I i thought a little bit about this issue um i I think mostly what we'll be talking about is 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 how would you store information on a a surface because if we're interfacing with solid state, we have to be essentially coding the the molecules to to a solid state structure um, and, and yes uh, you, you can certainly pattern molecules so if you're if you're still um, storing information in the presence or absence of a molecule, you can, you can imagine basically patterning a surface um, with molecules that prescribe um, what is the information at, at different positions. Um, so I, I feel like we're, we're mostly there with those kinds of technologies. Uh, in, in terms of storage, I, I think that's quite, quite doable. Um, I think l- what I still haven't figured out is, is how do you then compute um, having the molecules at, at a surface. Um, it's a little bit trickier for me. Um, but but yes, I, I can certainly imagine uh, having molecules tethered or or just uh, physically absorbed or chemically absorbed in in different ways to a surface and, and and using that interface.
3: Do you think that will be necessary going forward, or uh, do you think people would be more open to like if say if we couldn't figure out how to do computing tethered to a surface? Or do you think the community will be more open to doing it not on a surface? would be more
1: open to, to doing it. Um, I, I think what we have to prove first uh, is, is that uh, this, this really is a, a promising path. So I'm, I'm not even there to uh, figuring out if the community will accept it um, you know, in complements uh, to, to solid state devices yet. I, I think we really have to say that, that uh, molecular computing is its own niche. It's solving these classes of problems that really couldn't be solved in silico. And then we have to get to the point of, of figuring out how to interface the two. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that we fully won that battle yet. I think we won storage. I'm not sure that we won computing yet. Yeah.
3: But for computing, could you argue that the, maybe the biggest application would be speeding up reading and writing of things stored in molecules? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you, can, you can certainly argue that. Um, I, I think that's fair.
1: I, I think that's absolutely fair. Um, I, I guess I, I keep craving for something a little bit deeper than that, uh, you know, trying to do something much more general than that. Um, but, but we'll see where things go.
2: Re- regarding reading out the result, um my knowledge for mass spec is pretty old. I'm not sure if they're advanced technology. For mass spec, do you need the molecules to be pretty pure to get a clean result? That means you will need to like, purify the um, or separate the molecules in, to make sure they're pretty pure to get a clean mass spec? Or you can um, do mass spec on them um, in parallel?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, no, we, we don't have to purify anything. Uh, you know, in fact, when we first started this project, we thought we, we would. Um, but, but as it turns out, it, as long as we uh, have reactions, uh, as long as we can be sure that some percentage of the reaction is going on, we can see those products. And we can see those products amidst a whole other set of, of products. Uh, so our spectra are very, very messy. Um, but what we're able to do is basically machine learn the features of the molecules that we, we hope to see. Um, and so we can get around a lot of that noise. Um, now, if, you, if, it, if we weren't sure which reactions were happening with thousands or tens of thousands of, of molecules, yeah, we'd be in trouble because we'd have a really high noise floor for our mass spec. Um, but, but in general, no, we haven't had issues with that. Um, in fact, you know, our reactions by a synthetic chemist standards are, are super messy. Uh, we literally just throw our reactants together and they react and some things react and some things don't react. Um, so, no, we're not doing any purification right now but that's a good question.
3: So I can see how that's not a problem for for storage, but in terms of doing computations and uh, error rates within computing, do you think that can be a limiting factor? Or do you have to have like a lot of redundancy to over, overcome the, the messiness? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so,
1: I, I, There there are different ways of of doing error correction. Uh, And and so some of the the techniques that we've had are are things like sparsity. Uh, So if you're able to actually use reactions that move you between one state to another, between a couple of states um, that are well resolved from other states, um, we can get around some of these issues without necessarily having redundancy. Uh, And so that's one trick to to doing some things. now, uh, do I agree with you overall? Yes, I, I, I do. So, so with, with computing, um, we will have to be careful about things like cross-reactivity, um, or we will have to basically say uh, you know, the, the answers that we get from cross-reactions are just so different than the answers that we're looking for that we never even pay attention to that space. Um, so, so there are some tricks uh, if you
3: can expect what, what's coming out. Do you think that it is the case that you can expect what's coming out, and then you can factor that in into your analysis? Um,
1: I, I think you can have a, a general notion of, of, of what's coming out. Um, so if you're talking about all-purpose computing, where we, we can put in I, I don't know for multiplying, you know, any two numbers, and then and then figure out what's coming out. Um, it, that's where it would get very difficult, um, but you know, at, at this point I don't think we're, we're talking about all-purpose computing where you're putting in any combination of, of inputs whatsoever. Um, I, I think we're still sort of at the stage of, uh, we, we have some expectations of, of the kinds of things that are going to come out of our computation.
0: If I understand correctly, so um, your current experience with computation, are um, maybe it's fair to say at kind of the same stage as when, well a, a bit further on, but when Len Edelman was working on Hamiltonian um, on the traveling sales problem and uh, where he was kind of manually doing each step of the reaction. So so if I answered your slides, you were kind of uh, manually pipetting between wells. Do you see a route forward to automating um, single mo- uh, small molecule computation uh, with maybe in a single pot?
1: Um- we are all automated. Uh, so, so we when we when we first started and didn't have the equipment, we weren't. But uh, we, we are currently all automated uh, for for almost everything that we do. Um, now, it's not fully single pot because of some of the analytical issues that, that I was describing. Um, but that's for storage. Uh, for for computation, so far we we have been doing everything single pot basically.
0: Uh, sorry for for misunderstanding that. Um... And, and going back to the, the storage um, you were mentioning, so um, mass spec machines can be uh, pretty, pretty expensive, but obviously a lot of universities have them, so that's not a, a big of an issue. But um, do you maybe see any viable, cheap alternatives coming around? Um, how difficult would it be, for example, to amend an Oxford Nanopore system to use it? Because um, that also uses machine learning on, on messy traces,
1: um, yeah, we're, we're thinking exactly about that right now. Uh, so we're thinking about how do we miniaturize our, our mass spec, and how do we potentially use nanopore sequencing? Um, you know, one, one of the issues right now, and, and, and maybe you know more than me, but one of the things that we've been thinking about is, is just, uh, if, if you're talking about small molecules, how well can a nanopore do? Um, so they, ha- they have to have some reasonable extent for the nanopore to do well. Uh, but I, I think there's room for the technologies to grow there. and, and so. We're, we're thinking about how do we push that um, and I, I, I think there there is a lot of space to, to make uh, smaller uh, mass spec facilities available now I, what I what I should say is is just that uh, you know, we, yes, we used a very large instrument. It turned out that we probably didn't need that. Maybe I shouldn't say that. You know, Our funders might get upset, but um, we didn't realize it from the beginning. We, we thought we would really need a huge instrument, but using uh, different types of error correction, um, using sparsity, we were able to, to get away with a lot smaller mixtures than we thought to achieve the same kinds of information densities. Um, so actually, you could use your run-of-the-mill mass spec on many of the things that we're doing.
3: Yeah, this might be a very naive question, but do you lose a, a significant amount of sample every time you mass spec it to do your, your readings?
1: Yeah uh, so so you're right it, it is a destructive uh, technique um, we've We've thought about non-destructive optical techniques for reading things out depends upon the, the you know how many uh, bits you're really storing and working with. Um, mass spec is nice because of the, just because of the fact that you really can read a super large mass range um, and the the resolution of the peaks is, is good, um, whereas a lot of optical technologies at, at room temperature, your spectra just have these broad peaks, uh, and, and so it becomes a mess. Uh, so, so we definitely have thought about that. There, there's one person on our team who thinks about this all the time. He's our optics person. Um, so we've we thought about doing multimodal uh, types of, of ramen, multimodal types of IR. Um, they're still not going to give you quite the resolution that mass spec will, um, but, but there are other options for making things not destructive.
0: And I guess um DNA storage is destructive too when you read it. um I guess what DNA does have is is polymerase chain reaction um obviously for for general molecules it's a very difficult problem to think about copying them arbitrarily are oogies in any way suitable for that or or can you think of any other small molecules that might allow you to copy chemically
1: yeah so so p c r is pretty unique uh and, and uh, obviously if it wasn't so unique, it wouldn't be so popular um uh, so so I don't know of any technologies that do that off the bat. Um, obviously, some people have come up with technologies that couple small molecules to DNA and then you know, PCR up the DNA. Um, obviously, small molecules can also undergo autocatalytic reactions. Uh, and so there's some potential there, but uh, there aren't that many autocatalytic reactions where you're talking about every molecule could potentially be ampl- amplified. Um, there are certain paths, but we're not in the same place that PCR is.
3: So how, how easy is the synthesis then? So say if you were to read out the sample by mass spec and then you just wanted to make sure you constantly have the supply of it, can you use the mass spec signal to just synthesize more of the same thing?
1: You could. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, so like I was saying, our, our synthesis is fully automated and we don't need the kinds of purities that, that most chemists are used to. So um, absolutely, uh, you, you can synthesize basically on demand.
0: Um and have you looked at any um, kind of analog storage with, with your small molecule systems? Um,
1: that's, that, that's interesting. Um, we thought about it, but the scaling for analog is not what you would expect. Uh, so when you're when you're talking about let's say giving molecules uh, multiple concentrations, so say you have ten concentrations for each molecule that could be present or absent, then you're, you're only getting essentially log base 2 of 10 uh, of more possibilities there. Um, and so it's actually not that much, uh, unless you're, you're starting to talk about thousands millions of concentrations, which wouldn't really be possible with many technologies right now. Um, so yes, we, we've thought about analog. We, we just decided that it doesn't necessarily give you as much as you might hope.
3: Is there a way of incorporating more inorganic type chemistry uh, within molecular chemical storage? Maybe that would even make reading out things in a non mass bag fashion easier?
1: Yep. Yeah, we, we have. Um, we just think that some, some of the synthesis is a little bit more challenging, but we, we have not our, our synthetic chemist is actually an inorganic chemist, so we constantly think about can we use redox reactions. Um, and, and so the, the answer is yes, we, we could use those technologies. We just haven't gone down that path um, in, in part uh, because of the synthesis and in part originally we wanted to uh, create molecules that had sort of a combinatorial scaling of the number of combinations. We couldn't think of particularly good ways of doing that inorganically, um, but it's not to say that they don't exist out there.
0: Um, And going back to to the computation, uh, would you say that perceptrons are a more natural um, computation for chemistry to do than maybe other computations? And could you uh, maybe expand more on, on your thoughts at the end about overarching theories for chemical computation? Do you think that Um, Is possible maybe to get a grand unified theory whatever that might look like or do you think we'll look at specific chemistries like what these organic uh, molecules can do and what maybe in the future these inorganic molecules can do rather than kind of a grand overarching one Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. yeah um so we're we're always going to be bound by some of the specific parameters of chemistries. Uh, so, for for example, what what their reaction order is, what the rate constants are, uh, and so that's where the specific comes in. I, I think uh, what what people have to think of much more broadly is uh, if if you have a, a couple of series of, of ordinary differential equations that, that or, or even partial differential equations that represent what different reactions are, are doing. Um, what are the kinds of computations you, you can get out of that, um, and, and how can we control these systems, and can we control these systems uh, to yield computations that, that we want? Um, so there have been examples, again, by synthetic chemists, but I, 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 I don't feel people have, have really uh, worked intensively on this. Um, you know, there are some, some papers that have come out by the Microsoft Group, uh, their computing, molecular computing group recently, that, that are coming close to this. But I. I I don't see, people aren't really thinking down that path uh, as much as I think they should. Um, The reason why I was talking about perceptrons, perceptrons are are sort of a subclass of that larger class of just coupled reactions. Um, The perceptrons, they multiply, accumulate like chemicals do naturally. They threshold like molecules do naturally. And, um, of course, we we see some of this in our our own bodies. Uh, So I I think there's something to be said that that's sort of closer than gates um, for Small molecule computing, I won't argue that for DNA, but, but for small molecule computing, I, I don't see a lot of great paths to, to making gates work yet. Um, you know, yes, people have made single gates, but cascading them um, is not gonna be so easy. Uh, so th- they, what, what I'm trying to say is that there are things that are closer to the chemistry, and there are motives that are further from the chemistry, um, and I think we have to build on some of the motives that are closer to what the molecules are actually doing um, to, to create some understanding of, of what they can truly be capable of.
3: In terms of applications, uh, how suited do you think small molecule comp- computing could be for things like interfacing with biomarkers for diagnostics or maybe even in, in, in vivo computation for maybe monitoring biology? Yeah, uh, so, so that's the, the
1: application that we foresee. Uh, and, and that we, we think we, we're trying to, to constantly work towards. Um, so so you, can, you can imagine using small molecules uh, to, to uh, essentially modify maybe biopolymers or, or modify um, metabolic uh, networks uh, in, in, in different ways um, because th- all those things are already molecular, uh, and, and so we can program small molecules to then interface with them um, and, and, and then sort of engineer uh, the, those different systems. Um, so that's absolutely the application. I think that, that is one of the key applications. Um, there, there are some other applications out there that, that we've been thinking of. Uh, so one possibility is, is steganography. Um, other possibilities are uh, also with soft robotics. Um, so you know, soft robots are essentially, I'll call them molecular, but they're materials-based. Uh, And so you can imagine using small molecules to interface with those materials rather than uh, electronics.
0: Um, And could you maybe leverage isotopic differences um, in your r groups to increase information density?
1: Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. We just haven't done it. Um, But this is definitely something that we've thought about.
2: Mm -hmm. I have a
3: really serious question. Do you refer to failed Oogie molecule experiments as Oogie Boogies? Maybe
1: we'll have to take that one. Uh, I, I have it, uh, but but we'll credit it to you uh, and and go forth from there. See if we can get it into a paper.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Brenda, for both your tutorial and for joining us today to answer some of our questions. It's exciting to see all the different avenues being taken in our field. And I can't wait to see where you and your lab go next. We'll be back in two weeks to speak with Dominic Scalise. Thank you for listening.